Coming up next on Contemplate. If Christians are saying that God isn't just powerful, but that God is good, perfectly good, then Christians must answer in an intellectually satisfying way how evil and suffering could exist. Well, there's a question we've all asked at one time or another. If God is good, how can evil and suffering exist? Well, there is an answer, and Pastor David will start helping us figure it all out today on Contemplate. Seeking Skeptics, week three. Uh, So if you're new here, if you're skeptical, hey, we've invited you here. We said we were seeking skeptics, right? We're seeking skeptics that are seeking truth, because that's the other thing that Christ followers love, and that's truth. Because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we love Jesus, and we love truth. Um, today, we're, gonna, we're not going to be in a particular passage of Scripture. Instead, we're just going to deal with truth in general, truth about God, some objections to belief in God. And so in week one, we went through a couple issues. We talked about exclusivity, and we talked about the bar to belief, okay? The thing about exclusivity that we sort of came down on is that all truth claims, all truth claims exclude true other truth claims that contradict those truth claims. All truth claims exclude all other truth claims that contradict those truth claims. There's nothing special in that sense about the things that Christians believe, about the idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven or something like that. There's nothing arrogant. There's nothing elitist about believing that Jesus is the only way. In fact, everybody believes that the things they think or that the things that they believe are true are the only things that are true. Whether those things are very inclusive or very exclusive, it's all exclusive, which is to say anyone who disagrees uh, by, by virtue of the law of non-contradiction, which is a logical law, it's like math, by virtue of that law, everything that contradicts with you, you disbelieve, okay? And so we, we came to the conclusion that exclusivity is not a barrier to believing in Christianity, okay? The fact that Christians believe that what they believe is true is a pretty normal thing. Most people believe that what they believe is true or else they wouldn't believe it, right? And so we talked about that and then we talked about having a standard for belief. We said that um, you need to know what it takes for you to believe something. What did it take for you to believe that your car would make it here today? You know, that you saw that there was a certain amount of gas, that you know that you had the oil change recently, that you've checked the tires, whatever it is. At some level, you got in your car, some with more faith than others, um, and headed this direction, right? Those of you who have made it. Maybe there's some people who had some faith that haven't made it yet. But uh, you had some level of belief, right? And there was a certain standard for that. There was a certain amount of evidence for that. In the same way, beliefs about God, beliefs about anything, require a certain amount of evidence and a certain amount of faith. Everything that you believe is that way, okay? Everything important that we care about is that way. And so what you are responsible for as a believer in Jesus Christ or as a non-believer, if you're going to be intellectually honest, you're responsible to have a standard for belief. In other words, what does it take, what amount of evidence, what kind of evidence, how much evidence, et cetera, what does it take for me to believe that a truth claim is in fact true? 
And we suggested that you should set that standard before you engage with the ideas so that you won't move that standard in order to hold on to another belief because that would be intellectually dishonest, right? What does it take for you to believe that the sun is going to appear over the horizon tomorrow? I guess in the Northwest it depends what time of year it is, right? Um, but you know it's there whether you can see it or not. What, how much faith does it take to believe that? Not much. It seems to happen just about every day. Last time I checked, right? And so we believe it because we've seen it happen a lot of times. Okay, there's a standard of evidence for believing that thing. What does it take for you to believe in God? And we talked about the fact that evidence adds up cumulatively. Okay, it adds up cumulatively. There's very rarely is there a single smoking gun piece of evidence that, that makes us believe something. In fact, there's a number of things that we believe about a number of things. There's a number of different kinds of evidence and amounts of evidence that add up to make us believe something. And something as complicated as belief in God, belief in Scripture, belief that the Bible is true, belief in Jesus, belief that he rose from the dead, those are things that are going to require a number of different kinds of evidence that add up cumulatively in order to justify our belief in the probability that God exists rather than that he doesn't exist. That Jesus Christ is the son of God rather than that he's not. That he rose again from the dead rather than that he didn't, right? We take a certain amount of belief, it adds up, it's cumulative. All right. It's in many sources, okay? It's in many sources in many ways. And the body of evidence together, the totality of the evidence under the circumstances is what makes us believe. And we believe here, in fact, I'm quite certain that the evidence for the Christian faith, for the answers to the tough questions that Christianity and scripture and nature and science and philosophy and all these things provide, that the evidence for Jesus Christ is solid, coherent, comprehensive, convincing, and conclusive. And that's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about that. So last week we studied the problem of good, right? And, and the problem of good was sort of the argument for the existence of God based on the fact that we all understand that there are objective moral values and duties. That people who harm children for fun are really doing something evil, not just something that we don't like, right? And that therefore, if that's true, that it's really actually evil what they're doing, in order for that to be true, philosophers have said, God has to exist. There has to be a God that's good, that's outside the world and so on that exists, that has that standard that there must be a moral lawmaker if there truly is a real moral law. And because we know in our hearts and have seen with our eyes and understand at a very visceral level that there really is a moral law, then God must, must exist. That's what reason would tell us, okay? Because we believe that there are such things as good and evil and it's right and wrong. And these values are not based on our personal preferences, but they're outside ourselves. All right. So as we worked through last week, the problem of good is a problem for the atheist or the agnostic, okay? The person who denies the existence of God or denies that we can know that God exists, the problem of good is a problem for that person, okay, with that particular worldview. I'm calling this week the problem of bad, the problem of bad. It's an objection to the theist. The theist is the one who believes that there's a God, okay? The problem of bad is an objection to the existence of God. It's often called the problem of evil. But I'm calling it the problem of bad because I like that this week, okay? And it takes a few forms. It takes a few different forms. For those of you um, who have been going through this study series, you may remember that I've asked a couple of questions before we started this. 
and I had you give them to your, text them to your friends and family, your coworkers, your neighbors, the guy down the street, whatever, um, put them on social media and so on. And you did that and you got back to me. The two questions were this, what is your biggest objection to belief in God? And what is your biggest objection to Christianity? Here are some of the responses I got. I'm going to read these out for you. One, for starters, I object to a supreme being that would allow a great number of people, including children, to die, suffer from starvation, disease, poverty, etc., instead of helping them as the God of love of the Bible describes it. Next one, my biggest issue, suffering of children and infants. How and why? That's all I can say. Next one. For me, I'm not a believer in God. Too many bad things happen in this world for me to believe. Belief just isn't for me. I find it hard to believe that that if there is someone up there, he or she lets the horrors of this world carry on. Next one. It's not a new argument, but I think the anecdotal evidence of all the horrible things happening in the world. Let's take this recent Vegas massacre, for example. If there was a good God, he would not allow such a thing to happen or he is powerless to prevent it. In either case, such a God is not worthy of worship. Next one. If there was a real or true God, why would he let little children suffer for so long before they die? Why should we as parents have to see them suffer and have it etched into our minds till the day we die? First of all, let me be very clear about something. These are serious objections that you should take seriously. Evil and suffering are very real and very horrible. And my heart breaks for those who have experienced serious suffering, which is to say, all of us, all of us at some level, right? Um, If Christians are saying that God isn't just powerful, but that God is good, perfectly good, then Christians must answer in an intellectually satisfying way how evil and suffering could exist if God is good. So let me outline the problem of bad, the problem of evil, okay? Um, As with any objection, the morally right way to address an objection is to present the argument fully and in its most powerful form. You always give whoever's objecting, whoever the opponent to your argument is, the benefit of the doubt, the most powerful form of their argument. And so I'm going to give you actually three different forms that this takes, and we're going to start with the one that's the oldest, okay? Um, and and here's, here are the three types. You have the logical problem of evil, you have the probabilistic problem of evil, and you have the emotional problem of evil. In every case, the objection is based on the contradiction people see with an all-good, all-loving God and a world where he created where evil exists, right? A world that an all-loving, all-good God created shouldn't have evil. He should be powerful enough to stop it. So um, before we get to the reasonable answers that we have to, to these objections, I want to point something out about the problem of evil in general. The first issue that I see that exists with the problem of evil as an objection to the existence of God is that the problem of good is implied in the problem of evil. We know the problem of good is a proof of the existence of God, but the problem of good is implied in the problem of evil. We cannot have a problem of bad without the problem of good. In other words, God has to exist in order for there to be a moral standard of good, right, with which to hold him accountable. Remember that for an objective moral standard to exist, 
God has to exist. A good God has to exist. The problem of evil is based on our recognition that the world is not as it ought to be. Something's not right. And so we say there can't be a God because something's not right. There's suffering and evil and bad stuff, but we have to ask ourselves, coming into this, where did we get this idea of bad? C.S. Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christ follower. And he wrote the following about his thinking process at the time that he was an atheist. This is what he said. And of course, that raises a very big question. If a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And for many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question because I kept on feeling whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power? Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then that threw me back into another difficulty. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? This is something that sort of comes up to me just before I even get into the other answers to this problem, is that we don't know a crooked line unless we know a straight line. And if we know what the universe ought to be like, then we know that there's such a thing as good. And if we know there's such a thing as good, then there must be a God. And so it would be tough for the problem of evil to prove that God didn't exist. Let's, let's engage, though, with the problem of evil in three forms. Let's take the first one. The logical problem of evil. Here's the argument, okay? And, and by the way, if you haven't had your coffee, you know, slap yourself in the face a couple times. We're going to be ripping through some stuff. This is going to be complicated. And so you need to be focused. Okay, this is going to take some work. The logical problem of evil. If an all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful God existed, evil and suffering would not exist. Evil and suffering do exist. Therefore, an all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful God does not exist. What is this argument saying? That God is either not all-good, and that's why evil exists, or he's all-good, but he's not all-powerful, which is to say he does not stop evil and suffering when he would do so if he was all good and all powerful because he doesn't have the power to do it, okay? Or he is all good and all powerful but not all knowing. So he's unaware of what will happen before it happens and therefore cannot stop evil and suffering from happening. Now, why does the Christian have to answer this argument? Here's why. Because Christians make the truth claims that God is all good, all knowing, and all powerful, so the answer to this argument is this. You need to follow carefully. It must be logically impossible in order for this argument to work. It must be logically impossible for an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God to exist and for evil to exist at the same time. And the question is, is that true? Is it actually logically impossible? No. It's not logically impossible for God and evil and suffering to exist if... If God has what philosophers would call a morally sufficient reason to allow evil and suffering to exist. If God has a morally sufficient reason to allow evil and suffering to exist, then he could be all good, all powerful, and all knowing and exist at the same time that evil exists. So that would essentially add 
a line to the end of this argument. So it would say, if an all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful God existed, evil and suffering would not exist. Evil and suffering do exist. Therefore, an all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful God does not exist unless there's a morally sufficient reason to allow evil and suffering. Then the argument goes away. What does it mean to have a morally sufficient reason? Well, here's an example, okay? Let's say I have a disease, okay? Um, not hard to believe that I would have a disease. Um, and if I had a disease and there was a shot that I could get that would cure me from that disease, okay? There's a shot I can go. It's a big needle. It's going to hurt, but it's going to cure the disease. Now, I'm going to suffer from getting this shot. It's a big old needle. They're going to jab it into me, but the shot's going to cure the disease. Now, the amount of pain and suffering the shot causes is small compared to the pain and suffering of dying from the disease, right? My life living, the joy, all the things that can come from that are worth more than the small amount of pain and suffering from the disease. So while it would be wrong for you to walk up to me and jab a needle in my arm for no reason other than your own pleasure, well, I'm sure that none of you would take any pleasure in that, um, it, would, it would not be wrong for you to give me a shot that cured a disease, there's a morally sufficient reason to allow the small suffering of the shot if in the end it cures a disease, okay? So that's what we mean when we're talking about things like morally sufficient reasons. We're saying, does the suffering that's allowed to exist, is it justified because it's necessary, in this case the shot is necessary, it's necessary in order for a greater, a bigger good to exist, so the question goes like this, does God have a morally sufficient reason to allow evil and suffering? I'm going to say yes. Obviously, you know where this is going. Um, here's the argument, and I want you to follow this carefully. Creating people is good, even if it means that evil and suffering will exist. God is good. Therefore, God will create people, even if it means that evil and suffering will exist. Now, there's more to this, so just come with me here. Let's study the first premise because the second premise is assumed in both the argument for the problem of evil and the argument against it, right? Um, that, that's an assumption, right, that God is good, and so he can't exist in one case or he does exist in the other. But let's, let's look at the first premise, which is that creating people is good even if it means that evil and suffering will exist. Is it true that creating people is good even if evil and suffering will exist? In other words, you know that if you create them, there will be evil and suffering. Is it, a good, is it enough of a good to create them to be a morally sufficient reason to allow the evil and suffering to exist? Here's the deal. We prove that we believe that first premise because we have kids. We have children, right? The only thing that you can be certain of, absolutely certain of, when you have a child was that your child would experience pain. That's the only certainty. The only guarantee in life is that there will be pain. You can't guarantee there will be joy. You can guarantee there will be pain. I mean, there's pain in childbirth, right? And so yet we somehow for some reason rejoice over the birth of children. We think it's good, and we should. Why? Because life is good. The chance that your child will be able to experience love and joy and peace is worth the risk that your child will experience pain. It's a morally sufficient reason to allow the pain because the child being alive and experiencing all those things is a good. 
okay? It is a good choice for loving parents to have a child, even though we know the child will experience suffering. But it's even more interesting than that, I think. We also know that when we have children, they will actually do some evil. If you've had children, you know that for sure. So by your second one, no excuses, right? (laughs) You know for sure. You know that your child is going to make choices that hurt others. You know it. You know that people, other people will be hurt by choices that your child makes. And yet you choose to conceive and have children because it's good. It's good to have children. It's a morally sufficient reason to allow the evil in your child's life and even the evil that your child will do in order for the chance that they will get to experience joy and peace and love and beauty and all of the things that we find so important. Life. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? So what does all this mean when it comes to faith in God? Well, we'll find out in the next episode, and I hope you'll join us. I want to remind you that Contemplate is provided by Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington. And if you find this teaching helpful, why not come see us this Sunday morning? Pastor David loves to meet folks from our Contemplate audience, so I hope you'll come. Get directions and all the info you need at axechurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Well, that's it for today, but we'll look for you right here again next time for more of The Problem of Bad here on Contemplate. Contemplate.